One thought that has occurred to me several times since I started to make some, then most of my living as a podcaster, is what a strange influence success has on our choices. I'm not massively successful, but I am doing pretty well by podcasting standards, enough that continuing to do this makes the case for itself, thanks in no small part to your generous support. What it's made me realize, though, is that there are probably a lot of people out there doing something that they had a weird talent for or that caught on in such a way that they felt like they had to continue. I know there are bands and stand-up comedians out there, for example, who do a certain kind of material that attracts a fan base that they might not have picked if they'd had the choice. You know that one hit single off a record full of songs that sound nothing like it, and then the next album is just songs that sound like that one hit? That fan base got big enough that the band can make a living doing that thing they do, so they have to just keep doing that thing, whether or not it's the thing they really wanted to do. Success becomes a master that they serve. Then I wonder about politicians. They pick a career that is almost perfectly designed, if they are successful, to make them beholden to weird rich people and seedy lobbyists. Success is all about playing their metaphorical hit song over and over again for gross special interests. I guess what I'm saying is that we don't really get to pick what we're good at, and this isn't the case with us, but sometimes that puts people in the position of catering to strange customers. Enter Nicolas Cage. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to do a little high-wire act and try to make this metaphor signify two slightly different things at the same time. Nicolas Cage is an actor who seems to be extraordinarily gifted, but he does so many weird low-rent projects that it's hard to remember that sometimes. Every five years or so, he achieves something utterly masterful in a role, almost to remind us that he is a genius who is happy to do three schlocky direct-to-DVD films a year in order to afford his T-Rex skeleton German castle-owning lifestyle. So sometimes it's hard to tell if he's on a poster for a movie if it's going to be one of his weird Nick Cage owes the IRS some money movies or one of his, hey, Nick Cage used to be worth $150 million because he's great movies. Yuri Orlov, the character that Cage plays in today's film, a 2005 action movie from writer-director Andrew Nichol, makes no moral assessments about his chosen career as an international gray market arms dealer. He literally compares it to running a restaurant and selling food to people. He's serving a market demand, and he's really good at it. His brother, Jared Leto, is a lousy chef and spends most of the movie on the spectrum between miserable and in rehab from cocaine. Orlov probably wouldn't have stuck with it if dealing weapons hadn't continued to reward his efforts. Nick Cage probably wouldn't continue to get cast in movies if there wasn't a 13% chance that he'd turn in an amazing, film-elevating performance each time. Their success has induced a kind of behavior in both Cage and his character that pushes them to continue, despite a view from the outside that reveals the problems that arise from continuing. They're serving the master that is success, and there is a certain tragedy in that sometimes. There are two types of tragedies in life. One is not getting what you want. The other is getting it. Today on Friendly Fire, Lord of War. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that profits from war in our own, more subtle way. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. 
you know this is the pork chop feed this is this is the premium yeah. this is where this is where our bread is buttered we are making money off of war gentlemen mm. we sure are I mean, kind of off the idea of war not a particular war there are a lot of a lot of battles that are not our battles to fight what what war do you think we've made the most money off of <laughs> world war ii probably yeah or vietnam feels like it's got to yeah. be vietnam yeah right? but world war ii i think we've watched a lot of those john wayne movies but you know what true. you know what if we didn't do it somebody would yeah they do a worse job somebody would rush in to fill yeah. that void <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about the modern John Wayne, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I am not one of these Nicolas Cage fanboys. It may surprise you to know. I loved him in Valley what? Girl. I loved him in Valley Girl, and I thought he was great in Raising Arizona. But after that, uh, it just started to it just started to feel like he, I don't know, didn't I didn't keep being in love with him. You approach Lord of War and you see 2005's Nicolas Cage in it. Yeah. And at least I was expecting the manic Nicolas yeah, Cage. right, the googly-eyed Nicolas Cage. And I think casting him in this role really does something with that expectation because he is not that in this. And you're waiting for that coiled spring to shoot off. <laughs> and it just kind of never does. It remains coiled and yeah. intense. Yeah. In a way that really serves the character in the movie, I thought it was really great casting. I think so too. He did a he did a great job, and his Nicholas Cageness never squeezed out through the fist like a bunch of jello. It, it, it manifests <laughs> in sort of like his eccentricities mm-hmm. and like some of his line readings. You just can't not be Nicholas Cage sometimes, right? But uh, but there wasn't the spazzing out mm-hmm. moment that you often get in a mid two thousands. Nick Cage film, and I'm glad for that. The scene where he was handcuffed and sitting on a milk crate uh, overnight in the savannah next to a road that had been made into a runway. Ben, you've been handcuffed to a milk crate in (laughs) Western Africa next to an Antonov. What was that like? I was glad that Antonov was there uh, because the uh, the locals decided to disassemble that instead of me. Yeah. You have to like a voiceover-driven story to like this film. And I wonder to what degree I like it in this film because it's Nick Cage's voice. The voiceover didn't do a lot of... Didn't do a lot of explication that we didn't also see. He's really good at it. Yeah. He really is. He's a... I mean, I my experience of this movie was that I really liked the bullet manufacturing opener... And then I really hated like the first 30 minutes of the movie. And then it just kind of got better and better for me. I've never watched a movie that like I was so against in the, uh, in the first quarter and so on board for by the end. It was extremely stylish and uh, the style got in the way, I think of a lot, but what didn't you like about the beginning? This idea that, uh, a guy sees a Kalashnikov and is like, I think I'll go into gun running. And then like, like two scenes later, he's like walking up to the number one international arms dealer, like, because he's there to make deals. Like it really, uh, hand waves past the idea that this guy is a poor Ukrainian immigrant living in Brighton beach in one scene and a like well-capitalized international, smuggler in the next scene (laughs) yeah he he is he's portraying a a composite character 
of a bunch yeah. of people that basically are the same age as him and weirdly as I as I read up on them the same age as me apparently I am the perfect age to be an international <laughs> gun runner yeah but your your name doesn't end in like of or inski exactly and that's what's really holding you back I was in 1991 I was too busy trying to figure out how mud honey got those guitar tones and not interested <laughs> enough in figuring out how to get Bulgarian guns to Angola. And I, I feel like I've, I've took the wrong course. But what you're saying, yeah. Ben, is true. Almost every person that is referred to as a, as a component of this character came from Russia or was part of the, was part of the military industrial complex of some nation that gave them access to these weapons. They didn't just waltz in in a pair of loafers and suddenly become the, the masters of the universe. And that is weird. That is weird in this movie. Why they did that. And, and, and where the, like where the seed capital came from. Like I, uh, I just didn't feel like he sold two Uzis, Ben, he sold two Uzis and then he, then he turned that into four Uzis. (laughs) <laughs> and then four Uzis turned to eight Uzis. Yeah, he just worked his way up. Yeah. It's really a referrals business, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, one that, good experience with the Uzis, all of a sudden you're buying tanks. He knew that one Orthodox Jew in, in Brooklyn who who was connected to the IDF, and that I guess that's the hand-waving, right? We, we see that scene with his father at the synagogue, and right. then the next thing we know, he's like selling helicopters. <laughs> I'm thinking of getting more religious. And also, can you t- introduce me to somebody that could get me some Uzis? Let me suggest that people read about Victor Bout, B-O-U-T, who is a guy, again, almost my age, Nicholas Cage's age, who has this shadowy past in the Soviet military and ended up being basically this sort of Lord of War. There are about five people, but Victor Bout has got a great backstory. Edwin Wilson, uh, what, Lee Woloski? Simeon Moglevich. <laughs> this is an atrocity. Pretty, pretty good shit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Friendly Fire, the podcast where we try to pronounce names like Sarkis Sunghanalian. <laughs> well, the one member of the show who who legitimately yeah, could pronounce a the, Polish name. Who's the most known for mispronunciations, <laughs> just hangs back in the cut. <laughs> but then after after he establishes himself as a as a blockade runner and a sanctions buster, then you then you got into it. I had rivals. I feel like this film sets up some things that could, if you were to really, if you were to pause the film 10 minutes in and like really try to construct the relationships between characters and their behaviors, you could begin to paint a picture that goes something like Nick Cage's immigrant family comes to America and Nick Cage's character finds his father's interest in finding a culture where he belongs laughable. And so he wants to belong to every culture and war is the culture that, that crosses all of these borders. Like, I feel like it's sophistication adjacent, like the setup to this film ultimately means nothing 
for the rest of the film other than how close the brother characters are, the Nick Cage and the Jared Leto characters are. But I feel like it began to say something interesting about the nature of immigrants and their need to belong in a place that then it just it just sort of ignores for the rest. Did you feel any of that? Yeah, he he says at one point, I have a real facility for language. Now, we only ever see him speaking Ukrainian and English. Mm-hmm. He says a little bit of Spanish at one point and a little bit of Arabic at one point, I think. Enough to get past a border. Not never like he's never composing poetry. <laughs> at what halfway through this movie I felt like we were one Jan Hammer soundtrack away from this being a Michael Mann film. You know, there's all that <laughs> there's all those scenes at the beginning where they're like they're uh they can't they basically can't keep from having sex with uh whoever the most beautiful woman in the in the scene prior was. And the sex scenes are all like in shadow, kind of gratuitous. There's a lot of fancy cars. There's a lot of jetting around, and it and it was like a it was like Michael Mann's Miami Vice, which hap, which was actually a movie from this same time period. Um, but Michael Mann's Miami Vice never smiled, you know. And this movie smiles a little bit. Michael Mann films and Miami Vice specifically prescribe to an ethos, but this film felt more to me like Fight Club in that it's total like. The coolness of nihilism is what I felt like Nick Cage's character was about. And it felt like, to me, I am glad it didn't end up this way, but it began sort of fight clubby like that. Isn't it cool not to care? Yeah, yeah. But I think the magic trick of the film, and we'll definitely get to this come to review time, is that like it, it isn't that cool. And it's actually saying some interesting and important things under the veneer of this cool nihilism, this fight club adjacent nihilism. The world of international arms dealing and war making for a it starts off making it seem like a cool hot rod adventure. And then it goes through a long period where you just have you just have to contemplate all these little wars and the fact that they're not happening in isolation. The you know, the war in Sierra Leone and the war in Liberia are not just independent articles in the newspaper and they're not just little African nations kind of fighting out their own little uh, disputes, but they're part of a international global industry of war making. I think as this movie went on, it really made me think about war as a human enterprise, not just a thing that big business is capitalizing on, not just a thing that's like a gun industry toy or, a, you know, like the cigarette industry or whatever, but like something fundamental war making is like humanity's number one hobby. It is the business. Well, it's also fire that needs oxygen and the oxygen is the means to to conduct it. This movie really makes the case that like the disputes that might have been solved through other means found their way into being wars because suddenly there were 40,000 Kalashnikovs in Sierra Leone. But you know, in 1994, which would have been right in the midst of the sort of main thick of the plot here, uh, the Rwandan genocide happened in the space of just a few months in the middle of 1994. And, and 
that genocide was not one of these Kalashnikov, uh, like loaded con- conflicts. Like a lot of those deaths were machete deaths. Yeah. And so, you know, like the wars that were happening in post-colonial Africa and the, the, um, the like brutality of them, you could, you can, you can absolutely see the DNA of the dissolution of the cold war and that arms glut, but it's not sufficient to explain away. I mean, I, 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 I read some commentary now that suggests that, um, that all war in Africa is part of a colonial hangover, but it's, that, that's just too, that's just too small, a uh, a take on it, you know? It does. It it gives no agency to the people involved in those wars. Exactly. Like yeah. it's its own kind of paternalistic uh, <laughs> way right. of looking at it. Um, this this episode will come out uh, just a little bit after our mainline episode about beasts of no nation, and uh, I thought a lot about that movie in watching this one because the you know the the brutality of that conflict in beast of donation is so is so visceral and it i think this movie does do some really effective things to connect us to the plight of the people in the in the wars that these guns are supplying but also reminds us how little the people selling the guns give a shit about that right um, I, I thought that the, that little opening sequence is just like one of the most brilliant things I've ever seen in a movie, like watching a piece of sheet metal be stamped into, into a bullet. And then by the end of its journey, it's like in the head of a, a child soldier. Yeah. And no one along that production line finds themselves complicit in that. No, it's just, they're just moving boxes. Yeah. This, the sheet metal stamper is just as non-complicit as Nick Cage's character feels. Yeah. During this period, we were all, and, and it's, and it's referred to in the film at a, at a New York times level, there was a lot of concern about the missing nukes, all of the, the warheads that were in Kazakhstan and Bulgaria that had just sort of disappeared into what yeah. we thought of at the time would be a, like a briefcase nuke underground um, that never really materialized knock on wood. I mean, I don't know where all those nukes are, but they haven't produced a, a uh, uh, George Clooney stopped them in the peacemaker. Oh, right. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Clooney <laughs> came to, to our rescue, but, uh, but we didn't spend a lot of time wondering where all those, um, I mean, not just like helicopters and tanks, but guys, I think Colin Powell told us and the rest of the United Nations where that stuff ended up. Oh yeah, that's right. Along with all the sarin gas and mm-hmm. <laughs> and anthrax. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but but you know that you think about the conflicts that happened in the '90s and uh, like the war in Yugoslavia, a big example. But we assumed all those weapons were already there and were just being employed by the various factions you know that laid their hands on stuff 
the idea that the U.S. was, I mean, the United States was facilitating a lot of arms transfers to the Taliban. The U.S. has played Pakistan against India for decades. Uh, and then all the, you know, all the African wars, all of the Central American wars, you know, that, that, that colonel, that, the shadowy colonel that we never see is very Oliver Northy. Yeah, his name is even Oliver Southland, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot of truthiness here. And boy, it got me going. It really got me thinking about. I, I mean, I, don't, I didn't come out of it nihilist, any more nihilistic than I was. But. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment in the film where you really think about the relative value between, with, between nuclear ordnance and a bullet or a crate full of Kalashnikovs. And then you start to like piece it together like, well, yeah, I mean, there's nothing of value that remains after the use of a nuclear weapon, but you could perpetually make money by selling arms to both sides of a conflict right. forever. It makes a ton of sense. What, what's incredible, and I remember a time it wasn't- it, I'm it was, talking about value. I know you For are. your yeah. dollars. Well, you know, <laughs> for where, your black market- <laughs> Where are you going to put your, your investment? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember hearing during a time when I was traveling a lot, I remember hearing that you could buy a, an AK-47 in Yemen for 50 bucks. And I was like, that seems like such a good advertisement for a kind of tourism to Yemen. <laughs> like I thought a lot about how many AK-47s I could dismantle and put into camcorder cases and bring back to the States. Not because I was funding a rebel army, but because I just wanted them in my bedroom one under every mattress in my home but what's amazing about all this is that somehow the uh the world of western europe and america and canada and whatever the developed nations the world of import export laws customs kept all of those weapons out you know there's no you never see uh, the KKK or uh, like any homegrown American revolutionaries finding a, an abundance or even one automatic weapon. And the idea that there are hundreds of millions of these guns just being traded around the world and yet you couldn't get one. I mean, for, for me to get a AK-47, I would have to have, what is that called, Adam? A class... It's like a class C gun license of some kind. Yeah, you'd have to be able to drive a semi-truck first. Yeah, that's right. Right. You have a CDL and then you graduate. To... <laughs> yeah. So so that's one of the amazing things. Yeah. Like I read that like some of the uh, scenes where they have like a warehouse full of guns, those are real AKs because it was like cheaper for the film to find a warehouse full of AK-47s than to try and fill a warehouse with replicas. That scene where Nick Cage sold by weight- uh, was emblematic of that. They dealt with real arms dealers in making it, like the the row of tanks that they go by uh, when he starts talking about, you know, getting into bigger stuff. <laughs> those, are, those are real, like, international arms dealer-owned tanks. And uh, they had that, like, a few, you know, they had some limited amount of time to get that shot because the guy needed to take them to some other country to sell them. Not only that, they had to declare that they were doing that so that satellite photos wouldn't determine that there was some sort of arms buildup and a war imminent. 
Like they had to really get the word out. Did the filmmakers partly finance the film by then selling those uh, <laughs> those AKs on the open market? To, oh no! To people in Peru, our hands are dirty. <laughs> they were they were gonna try and finance it somewhat by selling those potatoes, but they'd all gone bad by the time yeah. they uh, they got into port. Potato, 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 potato. potato. I'm surprised that a stinky half filled shipping container full of potatoes was enough to put Interpol off. The <laughs> Even <side. laughs> one potato is sufficient. Interpol doesn't doesn't come off being very uh, very good in this movie, and also Interpol is misrepresented in the sense that Interpol itself is not an enforcement agency. They don't swoop in with a bunch of guns and arrest people. They're kind of like a, <laughs> they're a bunch of inspector Clouseau's somewhere. And they, they hand off that enforcement to local law enforcement. Right. They don't have jurisdiction anywhere. No. So that was weird that you see all these guys in black, black camo uniforms with <laughs> Interpol on the back. I was uh, I was I was lolling. I think people noticed the casting of Jared Leto and Nick Cage as being like big boons, but I think casting Ethan Hawke as that guy was pretty shrewd because he's dogged and good, essentially good, but he's not the kind of good that's like uh, that's like Ed Helms good, like doofus idiot good, right. And I think that that's a quality with an Ethan Hawke that you get with him. Like, he's not laughably good. No, he's kind of a jock. He's a little bit like a, yeah, he's good, but, but, and, but, and I, and I think he is kind of simple. If you miscast him, I think a lot of this film falls apart because you're just like, oh, here comes the idiot. Yeah, right. But I never felt like he was dumb. <laughs> Even up to the point where he's got Nick Cage in the interrogation booth and Nick Cage pulls his pants down and flicks him in the dick. Yeah. Like, there is every opportunity to think that the Ethan Hawke character is a boob, but he never is, even at his, at his most booby. But he's dumb in the way that I think a lot of FBI agents are dumb, which is to say oh, that they- no. <laughs> Please, d just bug John's phone. Leave me and Ben out of it. Which is to say that they went to college, you know, but they, they went to like Miami University or whatever. And I did, listen, if you went to Miami <laughs> University, it's a perfectly good school. But you know what I mean? Like they went, they went to like Buffalo Technical College and they graduated with a degree in law enforcement and they were smart enough to get into the FBI, but they weren't smart enough to be better than being in the FBI, you know, like they're cops. Yeah, they're they're only like two guys in Mindhunter unit. Everybody else is like Yeah, they're not develop they're not developing I profiles like of serial killers. They're they're just running around in a in a three-piece suit, but they're but they're ultimately they're cops. They're doing like background checks on on people that are being appointed to federal offices. You know, the the I think the the overwhelming sense in the 2016 election was that the rank and file in the FBI were super pro Trump and super anti Hillary, and I think that gives you a sense of like what the overall level of <laughs> the intellect average IQ of, is. Yeah, I mean, and I, listen, <laughs> I, if you if you are if you want to talk to me about Hillary's emails, just write me at Adam Pranica at maxfunkenstein dot org dot sex. <laughs> Boy, speaking of elections, a scene in this film gave me big chills. That moment uh, in 2001 when uh, Nick Cage is talking to that Andre Baptiste character uh, and they're like having that conversation about the hypocrisy of rigged elections. Yeah. 
Oof. He yeah. shows that he shows that New York Times with the with the uh, yeah. Supreme Court decides Get the election. That out of here. He's like, U.S. cannot ever say another word to a, to a nation in Africa. It's so bizarre. That was that's almost twenty years ago now. I never think about it, and in a way that foreign countries must all the time. I think about it all the time because before that, we really did have standing in terms of we i mean even though we had done terrible terrible things that preachiness of yeah. the united states you know we backed it up with a lot of yeah with a lot we of we did the hard thing when we had to do the hard thing yeah but you know but the, but we had fair elections at least yeah and ever since then it's just felt like ah whatever nobody gives a shit anymore and like the idea that you would do something to be honorable that didn't help you People won't even fucking put their shoes on on airplanes anymore. And they and they push back. They're like, why should I? Uh. It's like, well, yeah, okay, well, so rigged elections don't bother you either, huh? I bet you could take your shoes off in that, in that like, uh, tail gun area on that weird airplane. The Antonov? Right? Yeah. Yeah, you got, you, got, you got that to yourself back there. That, that plane crashed in Africa, like, a, like later that year. The, yeah. the one they used in the, in the film? Yeah. It was carrying humanitarian supplies at, and then crashed somewhere in Africa. It was carrying humanitarian supplies. Oh, yeah. Did you, did you not hear the finger flexions? <laughs> <laughs> isn't the Antonov the, isn't that that one, Adam, that you and I sometimes go down? Not the one that's in the film, but is, don't they make the world's biggest airplane? They do. And we, you and I have, like nerds, texted each other like, it's at Boeing Field. Run down. It's about to take off. We get the second biggest plane in the world. There is a larger Antonov with the six engines that uh, only flies in and out of like Texas. We never see that one, huh? Yeah. Oh, that's too bad. This was like an Antonov. The one in the movie was like a what? It was like a AN-12 or something. A smaller one. Ben, did you pick up on how many cast members were imported into this film from Some of All Fears? We got Bridget Moynihan. We've got the Russian general. I think there are a few Russians in this film that were from Some of All Fears. I thought that was interesting. Hmm. A lot of familiar faces. What year did Some of All Fears come out? Oh, one or oh two, I think. Yeah, it's a little a little cast reunion a, a few yeah. years later. Yeah. That's fun. Bridget Moynihan's character, I think, plays a fairly integral, that's how I pronounce that word, <laughs> role. <laughs> Like she's outside, she's more outside than the Jared Leto character, but it's her changing relationship to the work that changes everything. And I liked her for it. Like I liked her willingness to be blind to it. I like that moment where Ethan Hawke sits her down and like makes her see. The illegal firearms used to murder your mother and father were procured from men exactly like your husband. And I like the double cross at the end. It's tough to do what she did, which is play a woman who is believably shallow while at the same time, like portraying her as complex. Having the capacity for complexity that she has never tapped into. Yeah, right. I mean, you see, you see, you see that enough, like a, like a, like an arm candy character who, who turns a blind eye. But there are several moments, particularly that one where she's, you know, he comes home and she's like, I can't wear any of these clothes or any of these jewels because they're all soaked in blood. And he says, stop being dramatic. 
and she says, I mean, I'm a, I'm a failed actress, you know? Yeah. And then she puts the slip back on. Yeah. Like melodrama is what do you, what else do you expect? And it's good. It's a good script moment. Like that's good writing, but also she played it. Yeah. She played it really well, just in her, in her body and in her face. And, uh, and so I, you know, I was on the side of that character in a way that I think a lot, a lot in a lot of movies, you just, you end up with that spouse being a nag yeah, and being someone that's where you're just like, you know, you've got the diamonds, like quit complaining. So, so I think that character was really well written. The story and the film, I think is so efficient in its character building that like, you really don't get many scenes with her, but you understand that she's worldly because you see her billboards in 20 different parts of the world. Right. And he meets her in another country. Like you sort of get a sense of her intelligence or her sophistication in this way without, without getting many scenes to support it. And you feel like she's the type of person that if he didn't, if he was like, look, we can't afford these white Rolls Royces anymore. She wouldn't, leave him she might be relieved like in a way that apartment didn't feel like her mm-hmm. even though he had set it up just for her yeah there was that fundamental mistake he was making that this was how to get her and i mean he wasn't wrong in that he couldn't have she wouldn't have given him the time of day otherwise but then she was human she's the the character that's there to to really bring out what a sociopath he is because he can like pretend to, you know, care about her day or care about how his kid is doing, but he is, he has like no capacity for empathy for real because all he does all the time is, you know, ship guns around the world. I think these characters do him a favor though, because by his wife not coming out hardline against his, his life's work. And for Jared Leto's character to have his own vices, vices that crucially the Nick Cage character doesn't judge, like they're all, they all have their shit. They're all not good and complicated. I think if he was surrounded by good people, it would make the Nick Cage character into the sort of bastard that we wouldn't enjoy following along for the rest of this film. And I really feel like for how sociopathic Yuri is as a character, he is really fun to be around and he makes the movie good and enjoyable. You understand why why the hustle works because you understand what the other people like about him. Do I like him because I'm hustled by him though or do I like him because I like him? When Jared Leto at the end of the movie looks down from, you know, his brother gets him into one last heist and he looks down and sees a, a refugee camp and he realizes that they're selling guns to these guys and they're immediately going to take the guns down and massacre the refugee camp. And he feels a, you know, a moral, he, you know, he has a crisis of, of conscience. He tries to convince his brother that this is a, this is a reason to stop what they're doing because they would right. have direct responsibility, you know, direct blood on their hands for this. And Nicholas Cage Basically, and I think he could have, the writing could have been a little more articulate, but it's clear that he's saying, like, we're at that level, we're responsible for millions of deaths already. And so if we're not responsible for those, we're not responsible for these. Yeah. And ultimately, like, 
you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And when Jared Leto then takes the grenade and blows up the truck and is shot 600 times, what side are you on in that moment? Is Jared Leto the hero? Jared Leto seems like a coked out, like numbskull. And so the movie is is laying this out and you kind of have a hard time saying that Jared Leto is the hero of that moment. And if you don't, then you're, you're basically endorsing or on the side of the argument that guns don't kill people. People kill people. Well, it's not heroic to like try and make a big stand and just lose immediately. Like he doesn't, he doesn't accomplish anything in his death. But that's what I mean. Like to be against Nicolas Cage, even at the level of like the, like at the Ethan Hawke level of being against Nicolas Cage, where he has all the resources of law enforcement and he's got his FBI brains and whatnot. And it ends up that he's just a dupe. Like the movie never really indicts the gun trade. It indicts Nicolas Cage as someone who lied to his wife. But in the end, the gun trade continues and he continues and we don't get any, the movie doesn't, doesn't draw a much moral um, indictment of that. It's barely even any consternation when, when Nicholas Cage gets out of jail, it's like the movie kind of cheers. Yeah. It's just, it's just too bad that his brother died and his wife left him. But, but it's almost played like, well, those, them's the breaks. Break it up, break it up, break it up! Small price to pay to continue dealing arms. Yeah, because, you know, the coked up brother was probably going to die anyway, and, you know, now he goes back to fucking whores. Yeah, it's so interesting in that scene Nick Cage is, is telling Ethan Hawke, you know, I'm basically dead already. You can't hurt me. And oh, by the way... I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and open up your belt here and just pull these pants down. <laughs> Hold on, turn fl- around so I can so I can really pull them down. Good. Give you the flick. But that scene at the end where he's free is like he's not changed as a person at all. He's not trade. even he's not even hurt. Is my point right? And that's the soci- sociopathy that Ben has yeah pointed out. Like he's not hurt. He's gonna miss his familia. Yeah, but like easy come, easy go. Right. But he also maybe probably has AIDS too, so... Well, you know, AIDS isn't a death sentence, Adam. I mean, it is in a lot of the timeline of this film, though. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. This is this is pre-Magic Johnson, right? Well, they were working on AZT. Yeah. Different cocktails mm. becoming more and more effective. I mean, Obama is in this movie. I just blinking guide you. <laughs> no. He, oh, he's where? not. He, he's not. <laughs> but like the setup for Obama in the sense that mm. Obama gets elected and none of this stops. And at every turn in the in the in my lifetime where it's posited that that Republicans are hawks and Democrats are doves at the level of international arms dealing that doesn't bear out. I mean, the Republicans <laughs> right. fund little wars in Africa and then there's a democratic administration and they fund little wars too. 
and and when Nicolas Cage points to the newspaper and says the enemy the en- this person's an enemy but they are the enemy of our friends also so yeah. anyway go screw yourself it's like right another way that the Ethan Hawke character isn't all the way good is that i mean Oliver North was put on TV and questioned like Ethan Hawke is a phone call away from a New York Times reporter from from going public in a way that you know he won't. Right. The status quo is maintained at the end of the film at every single level. I mean, Oliver North tested in front or uh, testified in front of Congress and was just like we see today reviled by half the people in the country and absolutely celebrated yeah. by another half of the people. Yeah. And he sat up there in front of Congress with a smug ass look on his face. And was like, I don't know what you're talking about, Senator Lol. It's not going to go over well when Senator Lol goes back to Nebraska and tells his constituents about that. <laughs> Fucking Senator Lol. <laughs> I read somewhere that the Ukrainian general character, the actor, was actually speaking in a, ver- a, a, a Russian vernacular called Mat which is basically like the seven dirty words you can't say on television. Fun. There's a whole, there's a whole like Russian sub vernacular. That's just totally profane and obscene. Whoa. And a lot of his dialogue, he clearly was improvising and just <laughs> super dirty. The term mat derives from the Russian word for mother, a component of the key phrase. Yab tvoyu mat. Fuck your mother. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there are four pillars of mat. Oh, really? Kui, which means cock, penis, or yeah. for an equivalent colloquial uh, register, dick. Yeah. Pizda, which means cunt. Mm. Yabat, which means to fuck. And bliad, which means whore. The four pillars of mat. And kind of the four pillars of the greatest generation. <laughs> Stop advertising your other show. <laughs> we need more donors. <laughs> Tune in to the greatest generation and hear all the dirty words. All the all the bad words. I might have stayed in college for that fifth year if I had been taking Mott. Yeah, that's right. That would have held my attention. <laughs> well, you have to learn Mott on the street. Oh yeah. You can get, you know, you can study Chekhov and figure out what the illusions are. Maybe not. Maybe you have to you have to be born and bred to get all the illusions in Russian. Mm-hmm. But then to speak Mott. Yeah. You have to learn that at your uncle's elbow. You, you got to be a teaching assistant yeah. to get that intel. <laughs> Dirty uncle. <laughs> it's kind of the fifth beetle of Mott. <laughs> I, I really loved the portrayal of, uh, of Andre Baptiste, who was like a sort of uh, proxy for Charles Taylor or a stand-in of, the, of Liberia's Charles Taylor. He just did, he did that thing that... Um, that we see every once in a while, which is portray like a, a homicidal maniac and a like super cult of personality dictator. But again, in a way where his charm sh- shines through. So you feel always in danger around him, but also like when he shines his light on you, you feel like, Oh, thank you. You know, Oh, benevolent one. Like he really, right. he, he's, he sucks you into his cult of personality in this movie. So much dangerous stuff happens around him. And that moment where 
Nick Cage kills Ian Holm with Baptiste's hands around Nick Cage's hands, everything pivots off of that moment. The entire world for Nick Cage changes in that scene. Up until the trigger was pulled, I just didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That, that part really surprised me. That never happens. Yeah. Yeah. And then real blood on his hands yeah. from that moment forth. Like, yeah. real blood and he and he shakes it off. Yeah. And I guess he'd spend his whole career getting ready to shake it off. We get that long day for night sequence in Africa and him staggering around, going on his own vision quest. He is wrecked after that. Yeah, he had the yeah. brown brown. Yeah, need to see brown brown pop back up again in a war film, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we knew what that was right away. Nick Cage asking the bartender what brown brown is like an idiot. Can we watch three <laughs> movies in a row that have brown brown in it? I think we have to yeah. <laughs> add that to our list of disqualifiers. Definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah. You don't think about the cinema of brown brown. <laughs> <laughs> we should do a film festival. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Le cinema du brown brown. I think. I think some people walking into that theater are going to be confused by the programming. <laughs> oh, they're going to think it's a different kind of movie. Yeah, huh? yeah. Und scheiße Film, Film du scheiße. Did we put this movie in the wrong feed? It is absolutely a war movie, and I think we've talked about this a lot on this program, which is that this is the new war. I mean, e even when the United States military is involved, we're fighting insurgent groups that are basically armed with these exact weapons. So I don't see how this isn't a war movie. And I don't, I don't think we can look at war, contemporary war, without putting this kind of like international arms trade front and center as a character. Is this something like the baby boom where there's like a glut of a certain era of guns in the market, but they're going to eventually, you know, retire to South Beach? Like, are, are these guns going to wear out and then there are less guns overall? They sure did make a strong case for the longevity and reliability of the AK-47. They sure know? did. They sure did. I think you're going to be seeing these guys for the next hundred years, right? Yeah, uh, the technology keeps changing in the form of we have better surveillance, we have better, we have a lot of technology that that affects our ability to wage war on people that are living in, in mud houses. At the end of the day, it's still guns and bullets. And I don't, I don't, I mean, the AK-47, they're still making bullets for it. I don't know if you can get one for 50 bucks in Yemen anymore, but I mean, the, we watched the economy of this thing change too, right? The first time he's offered something in, in barter rather than cash, it's uh white, white. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, pure cocaine from a Colombian drug dealer. And he's like, Oh, you know, the guy shoots him in the leg and he's like, all right, I'll take your cocaine. And then he realizes how profitable it is. And then he gets into the diamond diamond trade. I think it's. I think the movie is an interesting uh, walk through the economy that goes hand in hand with it, which is untraceable money, untaxable right. money. I wonder to what degree your reason for uh, exchanging 
drugs for guns and diamonds for guns versus cash for guns is just logistics. Like it's easier to pack two pounds of white white than it is to try to move a duffel bag with $10 million in it. Right. In cash. He says it as much. He's like, well, I could take the diamonds. Like I didn't want to do it yeah. because I'm not a diamond guy or a coat guy, but like I only have one carry on. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to pay the extra 50 bucks. A lot easier to stick, uh, stick a bunch of diamonds up your butt than $10 million yeah. in cash. What we need to do is inflate the currency to a level commensurate with drugs, right? That way they're of equivalent weight. Whoa. And then you can and then if you're a drug runner or, or whatever or a or a gun runner, you can switch back to cash. Get the drugs out of it. It's better. Interesting. Yeah. I think just print money on like a, a thicker stock. So it's just, you know, a little heavier, a little more Card substantial. Stack. Well no, but hand. the problem is the money is already too thick. Yeah. The money is thick. We should make it Bible thin pages and have every bill no smaller of a denomination than $10,000. What we don't <laughs> see in this movie is the laundering, right? Like somehow he's got to get this money into bank accounts that allow him to buy white Rolls Royces. And that's a component of right. this story that like, how does the money Didn't get- you think the restaurant was going to be involved? You yeah. introduce us to the restaurant and to, and to Jared Leto and you're like- Sure enough, right? Right. But no. No, he's back making borscht. Yeah, shitty borscht. There are all these international universes, the money lenders, the money launderers, all on this. You remember the that- The Jesuses. The Jesuses. You remember that, that thing where when Noriega got taken down, like all the drug dealers lost their money because it was all like basically in Noriega's banks- his triple frontier house, right? <laughs> yeah. He didn't, uh, he, he lost the password, I guess, when he went to federal prison. Noriega wasn't insured by the FDIC. No, it's a real problem. What to do with your cash, what to do with your, you know, you could make a house out of it. Boy. So in that way, you're really making the case for diamonds and white, white. Yeah. White, white. I, I don't support blood diamonds. Cause I don't, yeah. you know, I don't, uh, I don't want to fund wars in Africa, but white white never hurt anybody. <laughs> <laughs> don't blame me. I voted for white white. Speaking of that, the the cocaine music cue. <laughs> oh, right. My wife had a great line. Killed me. She said, "That's a little on the nose." Oh <laughs> boy, she is hilarious. She is. She's a keeper. Anytime you want to tag her into the She's show, Ben, yeah. just go ahead. Yeah, there was a pretty impressive soundtrack on this movie. I gotta say. Yeah, what'd you make of the Buckley and its use in this film, the Hallelujah song? Fortunately or unfortunately, the person that was sitting next to me during the during watching this film started to sing along with it. Because she really <laughs> loves it. And I was just like, oh, oh, God, I was about to really snork at this. And now I can't because you're getting all like. That song is kind of a cheat yeah. code that you shouldn't just use like this. And yet, speaking out of the other side of my mouth, I love that sequence. I love Ava going to the storage unit. I love like how she's the most hurt about seeing her own painting in the in the trailer like how it all leads to that moment how the code was uh was their son's birthday mm. or whatever really twist the knife 
I thought that was good. I thought it rose above the cheese. Did it not? Or was it cheese? How, as a filmmaker, do you use that song ever? Because I would yeah. just, al- I would always be afraid that it would be too, like, yeah. it's obviously cheesy. And there are scenarios in- under which you can rise above the cheese. But how would you even know if you can, you know? I think the way to rise above the cheese there is to use a Jeff Buckley song that isn't yeah. Hallelujah. Like whatever it whatever uh I forget who it was that said like we we have had all of the hallelujah covers we ever need for the rest of our lives. Please don't ever do it again. <laughs> and you know, I, I I can't argue with it. That moment comes halfway from the end and I think if you don't see how well made the film is up until now you'd think a lesser film could use a hallelujah at that point to get it out of jail or whatever right out of film jail i mean like there's a cover this of this film doesn't need that no it doesn't there's a cover of le vie en rose that's that's yeah. great yeah that was awesome and and jeff buckley music all of it sounds churchy mm-hmm. like that i think you could have put you could have put i think jeff buckley belonged there i loved hearing his voice and his 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 song should be used in more movies but hallelujah, meh. Can't, uh, can't do it. Wrong track. It's the wrong track. Right singer, wrong track. You know, the, 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 there's a scene early on where they play For What It's Worth by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, or Buffalo Springfield, rather, sorry. And I was like, oh, is this Fortunate Son? Are we going to get a soundtrack of the- Are we going to get the Forrest Gump soundtrack? Yeah, game? exactly. <laughs> all the hits of the 90s? <laughs> but then it went all over the place. The soundtrack was was all over the place. I thought I thought effective. The uh, the third eye blind song, like Jumper playing when Jared Leto saw all the villagers down below and then like tried to save them by blowing up the trucks. <laughs> that was that was also very on the nose. <laughs> God, that truck blew big. Yeah, it did. I mean, not to make a big deal of it or anything. You know, Ian Holm rejected Nicolas Cage at the beginning by saying that he was a puppet master. He believed in a side of geopolitics and he was contemptuous of Cage's just sort of like whatever dumb business guy approach. And then we see him lose his way at the end of the Cold War when it's no longer clear. And I remember that feeling in the 90s, feeling like it it wasn't as simple as, well, there used to be a good guy and there used to be a bad guy and now it's, now that's gone and so we're all just, we lost all ability to think. Like, it wasn't that. There was always tons and tons of co- complexity in geopolitics. It's just that the wars got confusing. Like, what the hell, where, what side are you supposed to take in the, the Balkan War? There isn't really, a, I mean, what you end up with is the side that's, getting massacred you know it ends up that a lot of the conversation we have about war now is that you side with the underdog which isn't always uh, that's not i mean that's what's so so maddening about syria is like it doesn't really feel like any side is like aligned with us philosophically no right i mean the only the only people that that would that it feels nice or i'm not not nice but like our friends in that war are the kurds and we have well, they used to be, Jen. They yeah, used right. to be. We've we've like <laughs> a made, couple of days ago. We've made a lot of promises to the Kurds <laughs> over the years, and we have let them down over and over. 
But you know, the only reason that we love the Kurds is that they're hated by everybody else, right? I mean, the Turks want to eliminate them. The Iraqis wanted to eliminate them. The Persians want to eliminate them. But I don't, you know, I, right. for me, I don't know what the- Enemy of my enemy. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure what Kurdish foreign policy would be or whether I'm like 100% behind Kurdish aspirations. <laughs> it's just we side with the, it's just we side with the little guy. And that's not a very clear foreign policy. No. And the only reason we do it is because of some kind of American sense that we're here for justice. Like America's got a justice complex and we don't want anybody to get stepped on unless we're doing the stepping. And unless it benefits us for right. that step to take place. But all, but in these wars that are being fought kind of out in the in the middle distance, you know, we funded the Taliban for a decade. We sent Rambo to help them out. Yeah, fucking Rambo. Rambo with, a, you know, the biggest gun he ever had up until that point. I always believed the mind was the best weapon. <laughs> no, Adam, the gun of Rambo is the best weapon. That is the gun of Rambo. He did it. I knew you'd be jumping up and down. Gave it to him. And he just shoots it out the side of a of a truck window. That has got to be so fucking loud in that cab. It's the one scene where they where we <laughs> see people just flinching at the sound of guns. Yeah. I liked I liked that. You never yeah. see it. You never see people just like, oh, come on. That was too much. We finally got too much there. <laughs> yeah. Too much guns. Stop it. That hurts. Yeah. So that was a part of the movie that I felt was like perfectly tailored for Adam's interest. The part of the movie that I felt was perfectly tailored for John's interest is my entree into a moment of pedantry. And uh, I'd like to share this with you guys. When narrating the story about early stages of his business in the 1980s, Yuri Orlov mentions that he carried several passports at that at that time, including a Ukrainian passport. Ukraine did not get to issue its own passports until 1992. International travel document pedant took exception to that, <laughs> but uh, the the stack of uh, of passports, I uh, the, when that popped up on screen, I uh, I knew that John would be. Delighted oh, by that. You know how I feel about a shipping container full of guns, passports, and money. It's all. It's really my only <laughs> ambition. That's kind of like a a, a theme on the pork chop feed now oh. with uh, Triple Frontier and this and Terminator Two Judgment Day. If you had a, a bunch of passports on your side of of the, of the recording setup, John, and you had a, a Bulgarian passport, Chinese passport, Ukrainian passport, if I asked you. Hand me the Chinese passport. Hand me the Bulgarian passport. Would I have to say, hand me Ukraine passport? <laughs> <laughs> no, because the because of the no the rule. No, the the doesn't apply if you're because the the would be uh, referring to the passport, not the country. It's the Ukrainian passport. But if from a, Ukraine, but if a person from Ukraine overheard that conversation, oh, they would get mad. But Ukrainians are already pre-mad mm. about everything. Ukraine is came to you. The thing is, I don't think. Thank I, you for <laughs> indulging me that two-mile hike to a punchline. I don't I appreciate that. I don't think that I could carry a Chinese passport. I think that would raise more eyebrows than it would <laughs> than it's than it would be effective. God, I would love to see that. I would love to 
there's just a stack of passports on your dresser, the Chinese passport yeah. would be amazing. Yeah, I'm Jin Bao, and uh, uh, yeah, my mother was French. Hey, here's a little conspiracy theory. Remember when uh, when uh, Jared Leto makes the map of Ukraine out of cocaine on the glass table? Uh-huh. There's a lot of white white. The uh, the Crimea is the last thing that uh, that Nick Cage wipes off. Almost like it's not a part of Ukraine. <laughs> People are great. Anyway. People are great. That's um, big fun. You guys want to uh, get into reviewing the motion picture? Oh, is it time already? I've had so much fun talking about Lord of War with you. I almost hate to construct a custom rating system that we can use to review it. Ugh. So many things in this movie. This is a great object movie. And and stuff that's like thrown <laughs> away that's so interesting. Like the Uzi instruction manuals. There are instruction manuals for Uzis. <laughs> I want one. Don't you want one? I bet they're on the they're, internet. They're all over eBay, right? <laughs> wow. Very cool. Uh, and then I thought for a long time about making the review system the wife's paintings. I felt like that was a that was like a a moment that was like an inflection point mm. emotionally to the film. Mm-hmm. You f- Deep. You find out like how far he's willing to go. Yeah, I give it five wife's a, paintings. A good husband. <laughs> no, no. For this film, it's got to be darker. For this film, it's got to be. I don't know. Mom's little, head in a bucket. A little more dangerous. <laughs> Wrong movie, John. <laughs> Every time Yuri takes his brother to dry out, he, he puts him in the back of a limo. They pull up outside of whatever clinic they're at. Very nice compound, it looks like. You never see it. All you see is the inside of the limo. You also see that last bump that Nick Cage gives his brother just to get him through rehab. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get that last one. A, a rehab that grows in familiarity to Jared Leto to the point where he's like on a first name basis with the help. I like all those little details as it's sprinkled along. But that relationship is so, it's so interestingly toxic between the brothers because they both have their, they both have each other's backs totally. And their vices are such that there can be no judgment between them. Like, even to the degree that Jared Leto's character has a judgment about his brother selling the drugs, it takes seeing a parent and their child smashed with uh, machetes for him to, like, really get it through his head, how complicit they are in whatever's happening. But even then, like, he's had how many years to to see his brother's growing wealth accumulate off of the backs of, of poor warfighters, so... I don't know. There's something there's something about the way that they've enabled each other throughout this story that is extremely interesting and I think if they had a different sibling relationship, I'm not sure it would go this far. They are uniquely suited to encourage each other's vices and it's that bump at the end, the bump on the armrest that I think is the greatest representation of that enabling. So, we're going to use drugs, guys. One to five bumps will be the scale Whoa. of rating Whoa. for Lord of War. Five bumps. Yeah. I'm going all the way back. 
Yeah. Bump on the armrest. I hope this isn't a problem. No, it's all right. I've been clean a long time. I can handle it. I think it's interesting to watch a war film that has touched every other war film that we've watched, basically. A guy like this is involved, right? In all of them. Everything post-World War II, I think. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting to replay all the other war films that we've seen since World War II with the idea of a Nick Cage were operating in the background. And it adds color to all of those other stories in a good way. And I think it improves movies and our understanding of them along the way. And I don't know that we'll ever watch another Friendly Fire movie that is that parasitic, that has that sort of relationship to every other war film that we've watched. Really interesting. Symbiotic. Symbiotic is how I mean. That is that symbiotic. What are you, the PR department for parasites? (laughs) Listen... Parasites have a bad name, but let's not mistake them for symbiotes. Uh, I thought it was really fascinating to watch a film that that rode that knife's edge of how cool can we make this without cutting against the message that we're trying to send with it. And I thought this film did a really superb job in being on the right side of that knife's edge. I don't know how they did it because they made it look pretty cool in a lot of parts. But uh, I think it's a well-made film with a really interesting message. And I don't see any reason not to give it like a strong four and a half bumps. I really like this film a lot. And I am as shocked as anyone that I'm saying that. I thought this would be a Nick Cage trash movie, but it's not. It's a good Nick Cage movie. Really good. Four and a half bumps. Dude, you're going to... Drive to Corvallis. Yeah. I'm going to get there and not even know why you went. Going to stay up all week. Yeah. Interesting trivia. This film is is endorsed and recognized by Amnesty International. Whoa. As an important film. I think that says a lot. And if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. I've always said that. (laughs) You get Amnesty International on your side, you're going to get a lot of bumps from this guy. What about you, Ben? Yeah, I really like this movie. Um, it's kind of a mess of a movie. Like, there's a lot of it that is just kind of like, oh, fuck, I guess we need another scene. Uh, how about this? Yeah, you yeah. know, like, it really feels uh, very shambolic and in a way that, like, it almost defies belief that a cohesive uh, idea of a kind of guy and a, and a phenomenon in the world emerges by the end. But uh, it really does. Like I like uh, like I was saying before, my experience of watching this movie was that I it was a bad movie the entire time until it was a good movie. And yeah, that was a great great observation. Like I uh, I was totally won over in the end, and uh, I think that the the messiness of it and the like off putting shambolicness of it in the beginning does kind of detract from my overall score, but I think, uh, I think it, it, uh, it wins me over in the end. So I'll give it three and three quarter bumps or as, uh, <laughs> a friend of mine back in the day used to call them bumpies. <laughs> Would you like to come back for some bumpies? That's really awful. My <laughs> <laughs> friend sounds like a twat. <laughs> That's, that was his accent, not not an affectation. When you say back in the day, though, that uh, that's my favorite part because you're talking about yeah, 2013. 
back in the day. <clears throat> back in the good old days when I lived in New York and not this fucking bullshit town. Yeah. So much What's LA like? hate. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to rile out. Yeah, well, you're about to have a good friend down there. Have you guys talked about that on Greatest Gen? The fact that Adam's moving to California? Yeah. We haven't really It's come up. I I don't know when that episode's coming out uh, yet. We though. haven't talked about it on this program yet. This episode might come out before that episode. Well, uh-oh. Look it out. Friendly Fire beats Greatest Gen to the pole position again. Yeah. 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 Breaking news on Friendly yeah. Fire. RCA beats Sony again. Um, Yeah, this is really two movies. And, uh, you know, Adam, you talk about the message of this film, but I really kind of uh, feel like Ben describing it as a a kind of guy and a situation, basically, uh, feels more right. I didn't... I'm not sure what the message was, although I felt like it's a definite message. And the fact that you felt that there was a message and that Amnesty International felt that there was a message is, I think, interesting because I think anyone listening or anyone watching this movie could walk away with a different message. And if you went into this as a nihilist or a nihilist, you could come out the other side with your feelings unchanged or even reinforced. And so to come out of it, to come out of this movie with an, with an anti-war or anti-gun message, I feel like maybe is, uh, is to go in with an anti-war, anti-gun mentality. And this movie kind of confirms, um, the worst of it, but it also asks a lot of hard questions of us. And I think that, so there are two movies here and one of them, which I think is essential watching is the one that is about half of it, uh, that, that I think does a phenomenal job describing this world to us and putting us in it and, uh, and making us think about all these little wars that, that we treat as discrete conflicts that are part of a not a global conflict and no longer a conflict between capitalism and communism or West and East, but just, a just a, a kind of business a kind of global business. That's what I felt like the message was just the consideration of that interconnectedness in a way that, that I hadn't before. Yeah. And maybe that's what Am- Amnesty International is saying too. Not that you can, not that this movie concludes anything, but thank God yeah. uh, it raises awareness and it, it really, you know, it, it's like lay in bed at night and think about it type of awareness of, and we are, you know, this podcast is part of the war machine. Yeah. How many people do you mm-hmm. think listen to Friendly Fire and go out and enlist? I think a lot. I think they're probably Friendly Fire brigades in all the armed forces around the world right now. <laughs> Shout out to our many supporters listening on the bullet production line. <laughs> There's probably friendly fire kill squads in South America anyway. I told you guys, didn't I, that I that I referred to the Sidewinder missile in as part of a episode of the Omnibus. And uh and I got a we we got feedback from a guy who was like, I actually work at Raytheon in the Sidewinder <laughs> missile department. And let me just <laughs> let me just come to the defense of the Sidewinder 
And he like <laughs> broke down like he didn't say I got anything wrong. He was just like, I feel like you gave the Sidewinder a bad rap. You know, it was misused in that conflict. I was like, wow. In Podcasts. A, uh, in a past life, I was a camera operator for large events, one of which was a Raytheon shareholders meeting. And wow. the video packages that they put together for their products were basically like sports films or action movies or whatever. Like it's it's amazing how they turn their product into anything else we're celebrating. Bow 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 Yeah, all of the <laughs> everything you love about a commercial in the form of a bunker busting missile. Wow. Like incredible. So that side of this movie is a is i think in terms of like thought-provoking movies that we've watched it's a five bump movie the other half of this movie is this movie with that that's that is very stylish and too stylish there's there's unnecessary sex there's unnecessary hot cars. I don't think that gives us anything about these guys. I feel like the real arms dealers that were, that I've looked at as a result of watching this film are all dudes that keep a real low profile and do not ride around in white limos, but like, like keep a lid on it. Cause they're, cause they're bad actors. And all of that is fictionalized here, right? The, the arms dealing side of this movie is based on real people, but the, the, the brother relationship, the the model wife, the all of the character development, her paintings. I mean, all of that is just like out of a scriptwriter's mind. And it's not as good as the other half. The dialogue is corny. The voiceover sometimes, you know, he says all kinds of things like, there's a difference between good and evil. And sometimes good is evil or eviler than good. And sometimes <laughs> evil is the gooder of the two evils. And you're just like, what? Like, stop reading fortune cookies, dumbass. Like, it just didn't... <laughs> that stuff clanged sometimes. And I agree with you that Nicolas Cage did a... This is a good Nicolas Cage movie. And there's great writing in this movie. I wish more people knew how to use Nicolas Cage. Like, people cast him and want the full package. Give me 10 out of 10 Nicolas Cage, but what you need to do is use him like this. Yeah. Give give us the threat of Nicolas Cage, but don't pay it off. Yeah. Well, and that that worked and like like we've talked about a few times, there there are scenes in this movie that are like so well written and so well acted. It doesn't it's not served by the other stuff. Like the scene where he's tied to a milk crate and we watch that Antonov get disassembled in yeah. in fast time. Why is that in the same movie as him and his brother having group sex with two Russian girls at an arms trades conference? That's just, that's just sub, that's like a, that's like TV Miami Vice. And the two th things don't belong in the same movie. And so I don't know, you know, I, that movie gets, gets two and a half bumps. So I you think, don't find the surreality between those two uh, equivalent? Oh, I just I don't know. There was just so much. So there there were there were five super eye rolly moments. And again, I agree with Ben. Early in the movie, I'm going to come in at three point seven five bumps 
And I think that last quarter of the bump that belonged, that that should have been a four bump movie. The Crimean bump. It was the Crimean <laughs> bump. Yeah. God, just expertly done, John. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great show. Uh, but who will be the greatest guy? Really? That's a question that's on my mind. Ben, who's your guy? Uh, my guy is the helicopter uh, mechanic who gets the gets the uh, the missile launchers off the off the wings of the helicopter really quickly before uh, Ethan Hawke shows up. And uh, I looked him up. The actor's name is Weston Cage Coppola. Wow, that's Nick Cage's son. Whoa! Fun cameo. He's such a little chubster too. He doesn't look anything like <laughs> Nicholas Cage. I was like, what corner of Crimea did they find this guy in? Turns out- he Looks very Eastern Bloc. He does. He looks so, so Russian. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you hire somebody and you want them to have that get up and go. Like you say, we need this helicopter to be a humanitarian aid vehicle in five minutes. And he, he like hops to it. He gets it done. You know, uh, that, that kid's due for a promotion. So he's my guy. So many scenes in this film- uh, tell you how fucked up policy is as it pertains to weapon sales. And that was one of them. Like if they're on separate pallets, you're not shipping arms <laughs> at all. Yeah. And that look of resignation on Ethan Hawke's face, like, yeah, it's fucking dumb. You got me there. Right. They're going to uh, change the law in two weeks, but uh, it's such a killer. That's so brutal. Yeah. Uh, ben, you're known for sort of a strange guy selection, and I think I'm going to take a page out of your book by by going a little <laughs> outside the movie for my guy. There's a bit of trivia in this film, a lot like that moment where separating the missile launcher from the helicopter makes it the sale of two non-military items for some reason. Piece of trivia in the film where I was like, there is no way that's true, but I'm going to look it up anyway. <laughs> Someone refers to the flag of Mozambique as one of the two or three flags in the world that has an AK-47 in its artwork. Yeah. Like it's part of the flag. And I was like, no, it's not. No country <laughs> has an AK-47 in its flag. Right, so. Googled flag of Mozambique. There it is. AK-47 with bayonet crossed over uh, over farm implement, like a hoe, right? Uh, over over the picture of an open book, and then there's a star underneath it, and it's uh, green, black, yellow, and red. Where's the 99% invisible episode about that? Yeah, so the book's got to be the Bible, the hoe, and the it gun. It could be a farmer's like almanac, though. Swords yeah. into plowshares. I don't think it's a farmer's <laughs> almanac. And then the star is what? A, like a socialist people's republic? Yeah. Wow. Yellow five-pointed star. Wow. And for all of the pieces of trivia that like inspire you to look it up, I'm sure there's 10 others in this film that just went by too fast to put in the work. But it makes me a believer that it's all there. <laughs> it's all in the movie. <laughs> if you were to do a little bit of research, like the growing insanity of, of it all. And I think that's just one example. So I'm going to make my guy the flag of Mozambique <laughs> as just being emblematic of that kind of thing in this film. Awesome. I couldn't find a character that embodied that, but that kind of trivia, 
it's stitched into this film in a fun way. Nice. Fun. I had a guy, but I don't didn't feel like he was enough of a guy, so I picked a different guy. But the guy that I that I first gravitated to, see, I I think Ethan Hawke was a good character in this movie, but I don't like Ethan Hawke, and I don't like his character in this movie. I don't like FBI agents. I know a couple of FBI agents that are very nice people. Yeah, yeah, they went to perfectly good colleges. Have any of them ever said to you, "I am an FBI agent"? <laughs> No, but I did have one go, eh, I'm an FBI agent. And it was a guy I knew from college. And I was like, whoa, that explains the hip length car coat with leather collar. And he was like, very, very funny, John. Do you find the FBI agents in your life? The few that I've met have always sort of said it in a resigned kind of way. Yeah. Like they, they never, they're not a fireman that way. No, they know, they know that it's just like, okay, here yeah. we go. Yeah. It's uh, got to be such a pain in the ass to tell people. And then like, here come the 20 questions. Here we go. Uh, no, mostly I do background checks. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but Ethan Hawke at one point in this movie. So my guy was going to be just Ethan Hawke in the F-22 trying to force down the Antonov. Because Ethan Hawke as an Interpol agent in the backseat of an F-22 forcing this airplane <laughs> to the ground is such a, is such a, like candy corn movie moment. <laughs> just, just like what? No, 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 no. And just, so him just in the backseat of the F-22 would have been my moment. If F-22 masquerading as a MIG. I do not want you to get letters at John Roderick at maximumsex.biz. Yeah. I don't want you to get any okay. letters there. So I'm going to tell you that it is the Arrow L-39C Albatross is the aircraft that he was flying in that scene. No. Oh, I was going to say that. No, show show me. Show me that. Show me that airplane. It's it's on the Internet Movie Plane database. A what now? I had to go go to the back, find the fighter pilot, fight the fighter jet section. The Aero L39C Albatross. Yeah. It's a Czechoslovak airplane. Whoa. Okay. Good job, movie. I got to give. You know, there's a story about that plane, too. I got to give top props to yeah. that. Check Air Force. That turbo jet. Anyway, not enough of a guy. So my guy has got to be the Ukrainian general that's speaking Mott. <laughs> and no one else in the film production realizes what he's doing. Great pick. He's just sitting there just swearing up a storm. But I also like the character, right? He was very conflicted. He thought he was going to get in trouble. And then gradually he figures out that he's just going to get rich. And then in the end, he's killed in a Rolls Royce car bomb. Like, if only that could be the way that I went out. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope all of us are lucky enough to go out with our last words being, I'm the luckiest man alive. <laughs> Turn the key. Boom. <laughs> I want to be, I mean, I want to be 98 years old. Yeah. But I want to climb into my, my brand new Rolls Royce. Royal blue Rolls Royce. <laughs> I'm the luckiest man alive. <laughs> such a classic. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Can you put that in like a living will or I scatter the ashes of both my Royals, my Rolls Royce and myself <laughs> on the beaches of Maui. No, I want you to cut it with cocaine and, and give it to <laughs> yeah. as many child soldiers as you can find. 
You want brown brown? Yeah. I got the brown brown. Have you heard of red white? <laughs> okay, well, that was a really fun pork chop episode. Thanks to all of the folks who support our show. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, convince a friend to support our show. Tell them how much fun you're having here in the pork chop feed. We'll let Rob's take it from here. So, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire's Pork Chop Feed is a maximum fun podcast. It's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire when posting about the show on social media. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I am at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks so much for supporting Friendly Fire. Tell a friend. We'll see you next month with another Pork Chop film. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.